Uh, but they used to be very popular, so I used to keep, I've got this box filled with tracks. Most of them I would call not very good, uh, because I don't think they did a very good job representing what the gospel is. Some are very good, though. Uh, the last one I have, I've got some of these in my office. It's called Stop, Who Do You Think I Am? Uh, John MacArthur's ministry put out this tract. It's, it's called a tract, but it's a tiny little pamphlet. It's, you know, several pages long, 12 pages or so. But it does, I thought it did a, a very good job of presenting the gospel. Uh, they came all, all different kinds of emphases, um, things that they wanted to communicate. If Jesus came to your house, that, that's a little tract. Um, four things God wants you to know is a little tract. This one, I haven't gone through this box in probably decades, so I was going through it in preparation for today. And there was one I found in here by Reverend Leroy Ward, Happiness is Knowing Jesus and Being a Soul Winner. And that's kind of a special track to me because I knew Leroy Ward. We went to Grace Baptist Church together back in the day. And Leroy Ward was somebody who, who really enjoyed sharing his faith. And so he wrote uh, his own little tract. Uh, and I'd kept one. A lot of Christians for a time they would put out uh, at, at Halloween time. Here's a treat for here is a treat for you and some good news. And I'm sure as long as that a, a child got candy in addition to that, it was probably okay. But it's kind of like when Christians sometimes left tracks at restaurants, and they considered the track the best tip they could possibly give. And I know a lot of servers who would didn't really appreciate that sentiment. Uh, in some sense, it's true. But I think if you're going to leave a, cra- a tract as a Christian, you should tip exceptionally well um, if you really want to have a witness to that end. Chick Publications put out all kinds of tracts. Uh, there were little cartoonish booklets uh, published like a cartoon. Some of these were absolutely horrible. Uh, a few were actually pretty good. But that was one example of a tract. The most the two most popular tracks uh, that I grew up with, uh, neither of which I think does a great job, though I'm not going to say they're entirely bad, and I know Christ or God in his sovereignty chooses to use sometimes even somewhat poor means, but there was one called Bridge to Life, which was a little better than the four spiritual laws. But those were the two really popular ones. The best tracks... Uh, that I ever used were put out by Chapel Library. I think they're from Florida. I think even Pensacola, Florida. Uh, they put out some excellent tracks, many of which were written by Arthur Pink. So if you're familiar with Arthur Pink, you know that he didn't mince words in his tracks, and his tracks were very gospel-centric. So I say all that to say Charles Spurgeon has a little bit of a comment on the chapter we're about to start on, Isaiah chapter 55. And it's in your bulletin, but I'm going to show it to you on the screen. What he says about Isaiah chapter 55 is essentially this is God's tract. He puts it in these words. This very memorable chapter may be called God's own gospel sermon. In reading it, we should forget Isaiah and only remember Jehovah. He speaks not here by the prophet, but in the first person. God himself says... Incline your ear and come unto me. Now we value every single word of holy writ, but especially those words which come direct from the mouth of God himself. 
not so much spoken for him as by him. Take heed that you turn not away from him who speaks from heaven. It's kind of interesting because if somebody were to, you know, if I were unfamiliar with Isaiah chapter 55, and back in the day if somebody would have handed that to me and said, here's a tract, what do you think of this? I wonder how foolishly critical I might have been of that. Because in God's own tract, which has to be ideal, it has to be perfect because it's God himself speaking, his appeal is very urgent to sinners. So what we're going to do to listen to God's own gospel sermon, pull out of your bulletin that passage of scripture. This is from the New International Version because that's what David Suchet likes to read. The way that he reads and the way that he emphasizes things, I think you will get something of the sense of urgency and graciousness in God's own appeal to sinners from Isaiah chapter 55. Listen and then we will sing. Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. 
This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Now, I know you want to sing the trees of the field. You shall go out with joy. But Jonathan's working. He can't play his guitar. Rick's visiting his uh, son and daughter-in-law in Virginia. So we have no guitar. So we're, And we're focusing really on the early part of these verses. So the song that's appropriate before we get to that joy is in your hymnal 391, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Let's everybody stand one more time. All right, you may turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. I think it was on page 615 if you're using a pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to start by establishing what I'm going to call a very wide context for Isaiah chapter 55. And it looks something like this. It will be familiar because it's a context. It's also review. And that starts off with the world has a sin problem. In Good News Club, uh, different years, I've taught it. Did you have a sin, the sin disease? We have a sin problem, the sin disease. And you can deny that you're the sick one. You can deny that you have the sin disease, but you show all the symptoms, and the symptoms are you sin. So whether you want to admit it or not, because you sin, you are giving, demonstrating the fact you, in fact, do have the sin disease. So what we do with the sin disease, and this is something I worked out many years ago in teen club, what you do with the sin disease is you deny it, you ignore it, you downplay it, you rationalize it, you blame it on others... You can regret it and mourn it. You can cover it up or smooth it over. You can even admit it and pledge to do better. But none of those things will get rid of the sin disease. No matter how much you may mourn it, you may admit it, you may say, and I'm going to try that much harder the next time, you still won't get rid of the sin disease. Uh, You've done all of these at one time or another. It's within the realm of possibility you've done them all in a single day where you've denied it, you've blamed it on somebody else, you've rationalized it, you've downplayed it. It wasn't that bad. I didn't say what I really wanted to say. I didn't do what I really wanted to do. Uh, blame it on other people. Ignore. We do all, that's what we do with the sin disease. But none of those things will solve the sin disease. So the Bible and Isaiah, what we find out is only God can solve our sin disease problem. And he does this not by creating another man like Adam who was perfect for a time. That's not how he solves the sin disease. What he does is he himself, in the second person of the Trinity, comes and becomes a man. He becomes what he was not. He has always been God. But the second person of the Trinity, the Son becomes flesh and blood. He becomes a man. He doesn't merely come as a man, appearing as in human form. He actually becomes human himself. He is fully human and fully God, which reminds me that Hannah could have a sing a song too. But it's kind of a doo-woppy kind of a song. I'm not sure how it would go over. Uh, I don't think I could be the one to lead it, but I think if Eve helped her, we could pull it off. At any rate... So God solves our sin problem. Uh, this, this person who will solve the sin problem we know is Jesus of Nazareth. We know him as the promised Lord and Savior Messiah. In Isaiah, he's called, as often as not, the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord will solve our sin problem. The servant of the Lord will live a life of perfect obedience, a positive righteousness. 
the servant of the Lord will die on the cross, bearing the sin of his people and transferring to them his positive righteousness for the forgiveness of sins. The servant of the Lord rises on the third day and he sees the reward of all of his labor. He sees the reward of his obedience and of his sacrificial death. So God, in the person of the Son, solves our sin problem. So Isaiah chapter 53 reports the servant's sacrifice. That is, he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, that the sheep would be brought back to God. So that's Isaiah 53, the sacrifice. Isaiah 54, where we were three weeks. It announces the servant's success. Now we have a covenant of peace. Now we can look forward to a day when that covenant of peace is is brought to a point of culmination where all will know me, all children will know me. I will teach them myself and there will be peace in the land. That's how it will all culminate in Isaiah chapter 54. It's accomplished by the Son. We're living in it now, though so sometimes we're still storm-tossed. But Isaiah chapter 55 calls for sinners to respond to what has been reported, what has been announced, and what has been promised. If, in fact, God's record is true, record for history, record for salvation, record of our own sin in his provision for salvation, if all of that is true, God calls upon sinners to respond to this truth, to this reality. So... In Isaiah chapters 54 and 55, we have an unmistakable parallel. Those two chapters, where we were, where we are now in 55, those two chapters have a parallel in Scripture that is, it's simply striking how close it is, how similar it is. And there's any number of passages of Scripture, you've already listened to Isaiah chapter 55 read in the NIV, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. There's, there's a lot of scripture that's based upon an appeal like that. One of them that comes to mind is found in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink. And she says, why would you ask me for a drink? Jews don't uh, use with Samaritans. Uh, there's a racial boundary there. There's a, a social boundary there. Uh, This is uncustomary, and Jesus essentially tells her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink. Because any drink you provide me, I'm going to be thirsty again. But the drink that I can provide you, if you drink of this drink, you will never thirst again. Which sounds a lot like Isaiah, but that's not the parallel. Just in case that's the one you were thinking of and you thought that might be the right answer, it's really not. There's a a far more striking parallel to Isaiah 54 and 55 than that encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Though that certainly is a legitimate connection. It's meant to be put together because Jesus promises the same things that are promised in Isaiah chapter 55. The close parallel, and I'm going to show you how closely they parallel in the little bit of time I have, is found in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. The very last two chapters of the Bible sound very much like Isaiah chapter 54 and very much like Isaiah chapter 55, which is remarkable for lots of reasons. I want to share one of those reasons. 
One of the reasons is, or one of the significant uh, consequences of that, is that when Isaiah writes all of this about responding to God's promise, responding to what God has said is true, responding to this new covenant which is coming, Isaiah's writing roughly 700 years before Jesus is born. And, and what Isaiah has to tell the Israelites, which is meant to be comforting and encouraging and calling them to faith, calling them to repentance, that very much has an application with their, they're going to go into exile under Babylon. They will return in 538 BC, return to the homeland. That is a, a grace of God to his people. And all of that is true. But the story is much bigger than the Israelites went into exile 586 years before Jesus was born. And they came out of exile 538 years before Jesus was born. All of that picture, uh, anticipates a much, much bigger fulfillment. What it's picturing is a future state. A new heaven and a new earth. Because in Revelation 21... And 22, it's not looking back to, don't you remember one time when the Israelites went into exile and then they came out? It's not looking back in history. Revelation 21 and 22 is as future as you can get. It is it's the, the last two chapters of all of what God has given us in Scripture. And in this future event, it sounds like what Isaiah is talking about in 54 and 55. It's a small picture in 54 and 55, anticipating a much bigger fulfillment in this future state of a new heaven and a new earth. Let's look at it like this. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 11 and 12, verses I've already read, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. Revelation 21, the Apostle John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. I can't put on all John says about this new Jerusalem because it wouldn't fit on the screen and it would take too many slides. But he describes the city in much greater detail than what I've given you and in much greater detail than what Isaiah prophesied of. But both are talking about this ultimate future eternal city which is given by God to his people. In Isaiah chapter 55 verse 5, Behold... Call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In Isaiah 55, what's happening is that Gentile peoples are, are knowing God because they see God glorified in Israel. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 11. If if salvation has been brought to the church through Israel stumbling, what will it be like when Israel comes into all of their own promises of God? The Gentiles will take notice. They will be glorifying God because you know what? God has fulfilled all of his promises to his covenant people, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's how it looks in Revelation. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then the parallel. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Here the kings of the earth or the nations of the earth take notice. In Revelation, the kings of the earth bring their glory to this eternal city given by God to his people. In Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Revelation. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water, water of life without payment. In Revelation, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Both are talking about the same thing. Both are talking about what God is going to accomplish in in an age that we don't live in right now, in an eternal state, in a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 17. There are only four verses in all of the Bible that follow this verse. This is, practically the, this is practically the last word of all of Scripture. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Or Isaiah's words, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Isaiah is urging the same thing that the Apostle John will urge at the end of his letter, the last letter of our scripture, to the church for the world, and that is to come. Let's uh, draw some conclusions from this. Number one, God has promised and prepared an an eternal new order. The earth... And life on earth, as we now know it and experience it, will not go on forever. That should be no surprise, because any given day you can uh, check the newspaper and there's obituaries of people who realize that this life, this age, is not forever. Your life is not forever. Uh, You had ancestors who were born and lived their life, and they laid their heads down in the grave. Whether by accident or old age, none of us will live forever unless Christ comes back for his church prior to that event. So that's point number one. There is a new order that we are not experiencing right now. Point number two, entrance into the eternal order of what God has prepared is not automatic. Entrance requires a response. The response is a response of faith. It's believing what God said is true. It's depending on what God said is true. It's depending on what God did in the person of the Son who lived a positive life of righteousness, who died on the cross and rose again the third day. Just because you live on earth doesn't qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. It requires a response. It requires trust in what God accomplished in His Son. Thirdly, in both texts, both Isaiah 55 and Revelation 22, verse 17, God's appeal is gracious because he doesn't owe anyone anything, and it's also urgent. The appeal is urgent. 
You can get a sense of the urgency when Isaiah is saying, Come! Come buy without price. Why do you try to satisfy yourself on things that will never be meaningful? Revelation, the same way. Both are urgent calls to respond to what God graciously has done. What are your comments and questions? All right, let's uh, keep going then. Let's look at the uh, first two and a half verses. I'm going to go, I've already read verse 1 several times. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. The word come is used one, two, three, four, five times in those few verses. That verb come is the sixth most popular, most used verb in all of the Old Testament. It occurs more than 1,500 times. The Bible is often, it's translated by different English words, whether it's come or walked with, uh, traveled, traversed. It's a verb of action is the point. To respond to what God is appealing sinners to respond to requires some action. It requires movement. It, I will never enter the kingdom of God by merely thinking or meditating and living inside myself. It requires action. You must come, according to what Isaiah is appealing to. There's got to be coming to me. The first use in all the Bible, I think... I didn't double check, but I'm pretty sure the first use in all the Bible is before Adam and Eve had ever sinned, they were living in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord God came down and walked with Adam and Eve and conversed with them in the Garden. Enoch, a little bit later after sin, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Noah walked with God. That's all the same word that's translated come. The Lord calls out to Abram, who was an idolater, living among an idolatrous people. And the Lord told Abram, I want you to come here. I want you to come to a land I will show you. And the Lord entered into a covenant with Abraham and made promises to Abraham. But Abraham, he came. That's the same word that's used. The word is used in uh, Proverbs. It's an interesting passage where you've got two women... Uh, a wise woman calling out to people, come in here, all you who are foolish, all you simpletons that think you can make much of life apart from God, come in here and experience my rich fare, experience the wisdom of God. And then there's a foolish woman that says, ah, you're fine. But two women are calling out to come, to listen, listen to me, pay attention. The first use of the word come, this verb in Isaiah, which is somewhat significant, that's the book that we're in, it's found in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. It reads like this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Come now, let us reason about this. How could you miss this? Don't you see your sin disease? Don't you see how it's permeated you from the top of your head to the sole of your foot in in Isaiah chapter 1? Let's reason about this. The only solution to the sin problem has nothing to do with what you can do. 
It has everything to do with who I am and what I can do. So the word come is used in chapter 1 and verse 18. Who is to come? In these verses, the first person is everyone who thirsts. Have you ever thirsted for something more than what you experience right now in life? David talks about in the Psalms, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. I mean, we live in such a culture where we rarely are really very thirsty. We're not very far from some faucet or water fountain or some store, convenience store, where we can quench our thirst. But there are parts of the world where if you didn't take precautions, you could die of your thirst. Uh, There are times in my life where, because I'm in an unfamiliar place, when we visited uh, Ryan and Katie in Albuquerque uh, last year, it's a much drier climate, and I was thirsty a lot, a lot more than what I am here. And because I'm out of my element and my routine, it wasn't as easy to just always solve my, my thirst problem, to quench my thirst. But you know, when you, when you are really thirsty, it really is all-consuming. Really, you don't want to be distracted by anything other than, you know what, I'm parched. I've got to have something to drink. That's what Isaiah is talking about. This, this appeal, this call is for somebody who actually has a thirst, a thirst for something that this world can't provide. But it's not just the one who is thirsty. There's a second qualification. You've got to have no money. And that's actually a qualification. It's very interesting. Charles Spurgeon preaches a message on this. It's a long message. Part of me would love to read the entire message because it's so good. But I don't have time for that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, you know, all the other merchants, you know, whenever you're... uh, Especially in, in most of world cultures, uh, the way marketplaces work, you know, when somebody's trying to sell their wares, they're trying to convince you to part with your money and that what they're going to give you is worth the money they're asking. If you're going to buy a, a car, the salesman wants to convince you that, that, no, this vehicle is worth that. I mean, you don't want to settle for less. You really should spend this amount of money because it really is worth it. The value is there. And Spurgeon starts off his message by saying what, what God is calling for, what he's initially trying to impress upon people is you can't earn it. There's no amount of money. I've got to convince you however much you have, you've got to get rid of it. That this thing is free. It can't be earned. And Charles Spurgeon then goes into, he launches into different people that are responding to this call. And the first person that comes up is a Roman Catholic. And and using his language, it's probably worth reading. Uh, He says, uh, he holds out his hands and he has such a handful. He has to lift up his very lap with more, for he can hardly hold all his good works. He has Ave Marias and our fathers without number. And all kinds of crossings with holy water and bendings of the knee and prostrations before the altar and reverence of the host and attending at the mass and so on. And, and then he responds, Spurgeon says, and, and sir Romanist, you are coming to get salvation, are you? And you have brought all this with you, friend, I'm sorry for thee, but thou must go away from the box with all thy performance, for it is without money and without price. 
And then a Protestant comes, and a Protestant says, oh, I'm, he, the Protestant says, I'm so glad you gave it to that Romanist that think all his Ave Marias and all his Our Fathers would somehow earn him a ticket into the kingdom of heaven. And the Protestant says, I'm not like that, but I, I want you to know I faithfully gathered with the church every Sunday. And I put my money in the offering faithfully, and I served, and I was baptized, and I participated in the Lord's Supper. And he comes with his own armful of good works. And Spurgeon says, I'm sorry, sir. What the Lord is offering here is without money and without price. You've got to come empty-handed to get what the Lord offers. You've got to come empty-handed to drink of this fountain. And so long as your pockets are stuffed full with whatever you think is noble about you and distinguishes you from other sinners, you've still got the sin disease. And your sin disease may manifest itself different from my sin disease. But to partake of what is being offered here is without price. It's without money. There's nothing that can be brought. He actually then has a third experience of a, of a Calvinist coming. And this Calvinist is, is all about, you know, I've, I understand my theology and I've got my doctrines in order. And apparently... Uh, Calvinists in Spurgeon's day were very much known for their experiences. And so he very much is relying on his experience, this powerful movement of an experience that he has. And, and Spurgeon responds to him, I'm sorry, but if you're, gonna if you're going to trust and rely on your experience, you'll never partake of this fountain because you bring nothing to receive from, from God, what God gives in Isaiah chapter 55. It's a very powerful message I would have loved to have heard Spurgeon preach it in person. How is it received? How is it received? How, do, how does one come? What does it look like to come to receive what is being what God is calling upon sinners to receive? What does it look like? And the answer is very much what you would find in the Gospel of John when uh, Jesus talks about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And, and the Jews are quite offended by what Jesus has said. And what he's talking about is believing in him. It's by believing in me that you do the work of God. It's by believing in me that you're coming. And in Isaiah's words, it's by listening diligently. How do you come? You listen. To me. Diligently to me. Not to, your, not to what the church says, whatever your church tradition says. Not to what your friends say, oh, he was a good old boy. And they'll stand up at your funeral and they'll say she was a good gal, she was a good guy. I mean, what a wonderful person, what a delight. Don't listen to what people say about you. If you're going to come to this fountain, you've got to listen diligently to the Father, to God. You've got to incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Listen. It's a very set, it's a condition of the heart where I say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Speak to me. Move in me to give me desires that are not my own. That God would do a work of grace in me. Even as a believer, as a Christian, uh, this still needs to be my prayer. For me to grow in, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not about my effort and what I can do and how I think now my pockets are stuffed full. Rather, it's God do a work of grace in me. Let me listen to you. Give me ears to hear. Give me a heart to receive. The song that I think goes best with that, Rock of Ages was, is pretty good, but a song that I think would be good to close our service on 
is a Keith Green rendition of Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God. He goes through this song three times. Let this be a prayerful song. If you don't know the words the first time, many of you do. But if you don't, you can listen through the first time. He will lead you through the second two times. Um, so just uh, quite, settle yourself down for about four minutes. Work through this song that this would not just be merely a song singing, but it's actually an expression of your heart. God, give me to hear. Let me hear. Let me come. Enable me. Equip me. Draw me to you. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Spirit. 